Amen. As you're taking a seat, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. Who are they going with? Mr. Brad Crenshaw in the back there. All right. As they're doing that, let me invite you to open a Bible, if you brought one, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, if uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you, feel free to use an app on your phone. We will have some of the scriptures uh, on the screen behind us as well. Um, I always think that like uh, Christmas is like the craziest time of year with all the things until we get to the end of like the school year. I don't know if you feel like me, but it has just been, it has been nutso the past couple weeks. A lot going on, a lot of moving parts. I feel a little bit like that even in our church. We've got a lot of things going on today, and uh, we've got a meal. We're doing a fundraiser meal for uh, kids' camp after this, and we've got a meeting uh, for our Belize trip, and all of these are, are really good things. Um, <clears throat> I want to encourage us to keep our eyes and mind and focus, um, even as we just sang in the song, on really loving Jesus Um, Because that's where all of this comes from. All of the good mission we do comes directly from the heart of God. And we talked about that a little last week. We're going to kind of extend that. Jason, (laughs) I apologize a little bit to Jason because we were talking about this uh, series being like an evangelistic series. And it's been mostly about cultivating our own hearts. And we're going to get into some of that other thing, uh, evangelism and how that plays out in our life. And then uh, next week... uh, Jason, unless the Holy Spirit leads differently, is going to give us some more practical tools on how to do some of this. Um, Just as a a way of announcement too, moving in, we've got, uh, I don't want us to like uh, forego the summer. Um, We got about 99 days between Memorial Day and Labor Day, and a lot of times the spiritual condition of our heart, we feel like our kids are off, we're just going to like veg out all summer. And, um, and I encourage you not to do that. I encourage you to fight to make gathering with us a priority or with the people of God. Uh, maybe if you're out of town or on vacation, you'd find another like-minded family of faith there to, um, to gather with or gather just as your family um, if you're on vacation and have a, a worship time together to cultivate your hearts towards Him. We're going to do some cool things this summer. Uh, we call the summer the summer of uh, hope. And uh, we'll be focusing on our mission partners, our church planters, um, uh, the POW people, uh, adoption, the hub, many other things. You'll hear about these things. And we're bringing in people to kind of give some testimony. And let me remind you, just I guess to encourage all of us, that God is doing this incredible work in our midst and really across the world. And it's just awesome that we get to be a part of that. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. As I pray aloud, would you pray silently just right where you're at? Would you ask the God of the Bible, the God that opened his mouth and created the universe, would you ask him to speak very personally to you? In the quietness of this moment, the stillness of your heart, would you listen for his voice? God, you're so good to us. You love us and care for us. Your word says while we were yet sinners, you died for us. 
In no way is the gospel predicated upon us making ourselves acceptable and lovely so that you would accept us, but in our utter worst. You gave everything in your son dying on a cross for us. And I pray that we, to just that very thought, would capture our heart. Holy Spirit, we need you to, with surgical precision this morning, to cut out some of the uh, disease in our minds and hearts, lies that we've believed, things that the enemy has whispered in our ear and we've accepted them and even hold on to them as truth when they're not. Jesus, you tell us in the Gospel of John that that would be the Holy Spirit's work to lead us into all truth. Encourage those who are weak and weary. Heal those who are dealing with great sickness. Convict those who are walking in sin. Through your kindness, Lord, lead us to repentance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about, uh, in part three of our By Name series, about identity, mission, and power. As I said last week, sharing the gospel would be forced and inauthentic at best if you do it from a dry heart. We've talked quite a bit about the mission of God in this church and in the world, and we want to keep doing that, and we never want to turn down that fervor. We want to turn up the evangelistic fervor in our church and in our lives. It's easy for us to uh, get a little cozy in a small church like this and just start walking through the motions, and that would be a travesty. So this morning, I want to look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and Timothy, um, Timothy has got a hard kingdom assignment. He's passing the church at Ephesus. We talked, maybe it was even last summer, we were walking through the book of Acts, I think it's Acts uh, 17 when Paul goes to Ephesus and the huge riot starts and they're worshiping this goddess Diana. And basically, he gets thrown out of town. I mean, this is a this is this was the uh, this was the pinnacle of a pagan society. And Timothy is pastoring a church there. I mean, I guess you would this thing to what we would experience in the uh, United States would be one of the coast, east or the west coast, where uh, in some estimations, less than one percent of people claim to be evangelical Christian. Maybe it's like that. It's probably more like. Uh, like uh, planting a church, uh, as our missionaries do, in a place where, you know, less than one-tenth of one percent have ever even heard the gospel. That's more like what it's doing. And this, if you can imagine, this is where Timothy, a guy who's uh, naturally shy, timid, is pastoring a church. And he is facing, uh, he is facing uh, riots uh, without the church. He's facing division within the church. And to be honest, we get a glimpse here in chapter 1 of uh, 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul's writing to Timothy. He's writing it while he's in prison in Rome. You can just see because of what Paul says that Timothy is just done. He is just, he is exhausted, he is weary, he's weak. You get the sense like he wants to throw in a towel. Look how Paul talks to him in chapter chapter 1, 2 Timothy Chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See how personal it's already. 
my beloved child. And 1 Timothy, he said, Timothy, my true son in the faith. Here there's this like dear connection. This is not like, hey, you're one of my disciples. Hey, you're my, you're my boy. With that kind of endearment, he says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, he says in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. You see this with Timothy, that Paul, his mentor, his pastor, is speaking to him with these like such dear words. Can I just make a pastoral comment that everybody needs a pastor? And I don't say that in a self-serving way because I need a pastor. Everybody needs a pastor, a shepherd, someone who will come alongside you and encourage you when you're weak and weary to notice when you're going off course a little bit and put their, lovingly put their arm around you and say, hey, dude, what are you doing here, man? You got to get over there. It's what grieves the heart of me, one of your pastors, when, when we see this like uh, inconsistency and showing up to, to different things, because so, so often we just see as people just edge further and further to the edge, they just get picked off. Everybody needs a pastor. This is what Paul is doing to Timothy. He's putting his arm around him and he's saying, hey, Timothy, I know that this is real, man. I know the gospel's real. I know the call, your calling is real. He really focuses on his heart. Again, Timothy has just been beat down by life, pastoring this extremely hard church in a very anti-Christian culture with really, 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 really lost people coming to faith and all the baggage that they have. And I want us to see how these three things go together, identity, mission, and power. And we can't really live to the fullest of God's calling on our lives unless we have all three of these. The first is identity, and this is what Paul is focusing as he's writing to Timothy, he says in verse 5, I want you to fan into flame. In other words, what was once a burning fire is now a dying ember. And Timothy, it's not all about just doing the work, man. I need you to cultivate your heart for God. I need you to fan that flame, right? He calls him my dearly loved child in verse 2. He talks about his sincere faith in verse 4. And this is such a big deal. This is not just Paul doing this. Jesus did this in John 15, that through abiding with Jesus, that's what leads to a full and overflowing life of joy and fruitfulness. 1 John 3 would say it this way in verse 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In verse 2, beloved, we are God's children. Colossians 3, Paul reminds the church at Colossae of this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, all of this starts with your identity, knowing that you are a loved son or daughter of God and your heart is connected to him. It's so easy for us to slip from our identity. 
The world just kind of sucks it out of you. The busyness of life just kind of sucks it out of you. And working from our identity, which is good, and we got the flame going, and we're listening and responding to God and obedience, and this, this cycle where God's power's flowing, flowing through us, that's what we want. But if we're not careful, just slowly we kind of drift to this place where we're just walking through all the motions. Maybe some of you have experienced this in marriage. Have you ever done this? From time to time, Ashley and I will sit on the couch in our living room right next to each other, but feel miles apart. And it's not that we did anything wrong to offend or hurt each other. We just got caught up in the busyness of life that we forgot to cultivate our marriage. And marriage will easily move into just co-parenting. Have you ever been there? Maybe seasons of it. Of just, you just look up one day and you think, man, you remember back to the days when you dated, right? And, and how you did all these silly and romantic things, right? Just to express your love for one another. And you would spend hours on the phone watching TV together or whatever it was, even though you were apart. It's this kind of thing. And then nothing necessarily goes wrong except you forget to cultivate the marriage. And slowly it moves into this co-parenting. And if you're not careful, it'll move into isolation. And then it'll move to nothing. And certainly true in our walk with God, if we don't work to cultivate our heart for God, Bigner says it this way in his work, Beyond Words. And when Jesus comes along saying that the greatest command of all is to love God and to love our neighbor, he too is asking us to pay attention. If we're to love God, we must first stop, look, and listen for him and what is happening around us and inside us. Paul's there a second. What, what is God doing around you and in you right now? What, what season does God have you in your life? If we're not careful, we'll just move through all the things and we'll miss what God is doing in us and what he's doing around us. He goes on to say, if we're to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imagination as well as our eyes. That is to say, like artists, we must not just see their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Here it is love that is the frame we see them in. What he is saying is we can't just speed so quickly through life that we miss what God is doing in us and around us. And evangelism practice starts with us seeing with the very heart of God that these are sheep without shepherds, that these are people without rescue. They're enslaved in their bondage to sin and to darkness. And God has sent us as agents of reconciliation, as broken vessels that carry within it the surpassing value of the gospel, he has sent us to bring this good news to people. Listen, church, it doesn't matter what you do if you don't have love. First Corinthians tells us then that is just noise. It doesn't matter what we're doing or all the emotions. If we don't have love, then it's just a clanging symbol. Paul's encouraging Timothy here to fan into flame. His passion is evidently waning. You ever been in one of those seasons where you're just kind of stuck in the doldrums? You're just, it's just kind of just, uh, I described it last week as just kind of walking through the funk, right? You're just kind of just in this place and you just can't seem to get out of this rut, rut everything feeling mundane and a bit drab. And you think back of what it used to be like, your life, when you followed God passionately. You think about it. 
Man, I remember when I was there and I was doing this thing and I mean, I heard God's voice speak to me and just a fire lit in my heart that could not be quenched no matter what. You remember that and then you look at today and you're like, man, I just can't get my equilibrium. This is where Timothy's at. The season of life just seemed to suck the joy and life right out of him and Paul's writing him as a pastor would encouraging him helping him fight for the joy and passion that comes from our identity in Christ. If you've ever lit a fire, you know you have to start with some good kindling, a little ember of fire and some little good kindling, some dry wood that kind of will get this thing going, maybe a little paper, and then as it kind of grows a little bit more that you'll put uh, some logs on top of it. And then that leads to a bigger fire, and it eventually could be a bonfire as you keep adding the appropriate fuel. And that is what it's like in our relationship with God. It starts with a spark. It starts with this glowing ember. And then as Paul is telling Timothy, we have to fan into flame. The question is, how do we get the spark? I remember going... Years and years ago to hear some uh, guy speak at this conference and he was this expert on prayer and he got up and he was talking about how he cultivates his walk with God and he started every morning at 3.30 in the morning when he would get up and he would spend four hours in prayer and I was like, okay, I'm done because there's no way I can do that, right? That's not happening in, in my life. There's no way. And he said, but you know what? I wouldn't start just jumping four hours in. He said, you should start with one hour in prayer. And again, I'm like, well, I can't do that either. You know, I've got five minutes. What can I do? What kind of spark can I get in five minutes? And to be honest with you, today, after decades and decades of following Jesus, sometimes it takes me a lot of work to get to 15 minutes, cultivating my own heart. And there's some things that I've learned along the way to kind of process what God's saying to me. Even as I was writing this sermon, I just, sitting on my couch with an empty house, I just said, Jesus, I know that you're right here with me. And just acknowledging his presence, man, I, you can just feel like his grace just wrap you up. Here's one of the ways that I kind of find the spark again and again. I ask a few questions, this kind of prayer of examine at the beginning and end of my day. Where did I sense God at work today? God, what is your plan for me today? Where did I feel far away from God today? Why is that? What hurt me or frustrated me today? Where did I blow it today? What do I need to repent of today? Where, what part of the gospel am I not believing today? What does all this say about my identity as a son of God and what God is leading me to do? We've got to fan into flame. We've got to cultivate our heart for God. If not, we're going to move into doing all the things, but without the heart of God, and it's going to be just in vain. We have to fan it into flame. This always, the right identity, always leads to mission. When we're talking about identity, mission, and power, I'm going to spend a little time on this. The right identity, knowing who you are in Christ, your sonship or daughtership, knowing who you are. You're, you, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are, you are a son and an heir to the throne of the kingdom of the world. You are loved beyond measure. Knowing who you are, your identity always leads to mission. 
And this is where a lot of Christians mess it up because they want to just bask in the identity part and they never want to do anything. But that's not how it works. That's a clogged pipe. We're not getting, we're not getting rivers of life to anyone with a clogged pipe, right? We've got to, what's poured in us has to come out of us. Identity always leads to mission. We want to have the heart of Jesus that leads to the work of Jesus. This is why Paul reminds Timothy, if you look in verse 8, kind of the next thing. Hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. In other words, don't shy away from the gospel message, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The second part of that verse, at verse 8, he says, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. When the identity's right, it doesn't matter if suffering comes, it doesn't matter if resistance comes or rejection comes, because we've got the identity right, that we're loved. What can, what can people do to us? We're, we're loved by the, by the king of the universe, chosen to be with him. Who are you, man, that you would say anything about me, right? That we can walk through these just most difficult things, he says, Share in suffering because of the gospel. Then he says in verse 9, talking about all the things that Jesus has done in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. There's a calling on your life. This is not talking just to pastors or professional clergy. There is a, there is a calling by God on your life. Very specific calling. That he's created you for this and ordained these good works before you even came here. He's, he's created you. He's, he's made you special for this race that you are to run and only you can run it and there's some dark parts of the world that only you can light up and he's placed this mantle upon you and he's given you this charge and he's told you to go i've used this illustration before you can take a fish out of water and pile hundred dollar bills on the fish but that's not going to make him happy right he can chase all the hundred dollar bills he wants the fish was made for water in the same way you were made to walk with God and let his love ooze out of you. Him to work through us. And then the fire, you see how the fire's building? We're connected to the heart of God and he placed a burden in our heart to pray or minister or to share the gospel or share faith or an encouraging word. And we see the receptivity of that and we see the, the work and power of God begin to move. Three times this week I was just, had one of those just uh, moments, just almost desperation, like, God, this thing I'm hitting up against, and it is just so frustrating, and it's just uh, almost like uh, to despair, right? And at that very moment, three different times this week, some friend sent me a message three times saying, God's laid you on my heart, and I want to pray for you at this very moment. And again, whatever I was hitting up against, I just, just, just melted away. The God of the universe loves me, and he has placed a burden on someone's heart that lives hundreds or a thousand miles away to pray for me at this exact moment where I'm battling this temptation of discouragement and despair. And you see, you see how that works? And God leads you to do that. He's placed these burdens on your heart to send a text, to pray for someone, to write a card, to send them some money, to, to show up at their house to do these things where we would just communicate God's love through us. That's what God wants to use us for. Our lives should be marked by identity and mission. And you'd say, yeah, Luke, but we live in a post-Christian society and it's becoming less and less popular to stand for Christian values, much less popular to try to share the gospel with someone. 
Listen, don't listen to that lie. Matthew 9, 36 and 37, according to Jesus, the problem is not the harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the fields. The problem isn't that there are not enough people who actually care about discipleship or following Jesus. The problem is there just aren't very many Christians who actually care about the heart of God. We're sitting on some kind of beds of mediocrity and comfort. We've got this dualistic fight for the American dream and the kingdom of God together. I read a study just done a few years ago. Barna did this study. In it, he found that 83% of, the Ameri- of American churchgoers don't really know what the Great Commission is. About 50% said that they had never heard of it. Another 30-something percent said that they'd heard of it, but they didn't know what it meant. Only 17% of American Christian churchgoers had actually heard of the Great Commission, <clears throat> excuse me, and had a general understanding of what that meant for them. That's unbelievable, and I hope that doesn't represent our church. The Great Commission, the last words of Jesus before he, you know, ascended into heaven on the Mount of Ascension was that you are to go and make disciples of all nations. That is the charge upon us. If, if the goal was to worship him, he would have just called us to heaven immediately. If the goal was just to learn more about him through teaching, we would have just been beamed right into heaven. How, you can learn perfectly when you're in heaven, and there's no sin or separation. The goal, the very reason that we are here is to glorify God through our obedience and worship by going into all nations and making disciples. That is the call on your life and my life. Anyone who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior in this room, that call has been placed on you and me. I don't think in our church it's simply that people don't know about the Great Commission. I just feel like we're overwhelmed with the cultural moment that we live in. I shared a little bit of this in the equipping class a couple weeks ago. People ask, how can Jesus be the only way to heaven? How could a loving God send people to hell? What about pain and suffering? What about science and faith? Can you even trust the Bible, this ancient document? Look at the horrible things the church has been doing in the past. What are we going to do about the LGBTQ movement? And how does the church respond to that? What about all these other objections to the faith? And what if I share my faith with friends and they ask me about dinosaurs? I don't know what to tell them about the dinosaurs. Most people feel like they need a PhD in biblical ethics and apologetics even to evangelize their friends. I think most of us just feel overwhelmed. The Great Commission Church did not come with caveats. Like, hey, be a part of the Great Commission until you get to the 21st century and it's going to be a little difficult and then you can kind of ease off and we'll just let it be uh, as it's going to be. No, that's not what the Great Commission says. We're not let off the hook for that. No conditional clauses here. We've got to push through this feeling of being overwhelmed. We've got to connect to the heart of God and let it lead us into obedience to the mission of God. I read a book a few weeks ago by Mark Middleburg called Becoming a Contagious Christian. And in it, he gives six or seven different styles of evangelism. And I like these. The big thing now, my sister and I were talking about yesterday, is the Enneagram. You've ever heard of the Enneagram? Where it kind of lists what number you are. And millennials love to hear about themselves. They love this Enneagram thing. <laughs> Tell me more about me. What am, what am I like? And there's some interesting things about it, for sure. 
Think of this like, like, like Enneagram, but this is like your uh, evangelism Enneagram. This is talking about the different style or aptitude that God has gifted you with that you would be able to share your faith with others. Not saying that any of us just have one, maybe more in different seasons of life. Let me just jump in some of these different styles. First is the testimonial style. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. You remember this? This is he goes in and takes the spit, puts it in the man's eyes. The religious leaders of the day just get irate that he healed this man on the Sabbath and all these things. And they're saying that he's, uh, he's a sinner. Jesus must be a sinner. He must be from Satan himself. And so they start questioning this guy who, who, who was blind yesterday, but now he can see. And they said, hey, do you know if that Jesus guy, was he, is he a sinner? And then he responds to this. I love this. This is testimonial style. Hey, man, I don't know if he's a sinner. Here's what I know. I was blind yesterday. I can see today. This is the testimonial style. He knows nothing about apologetics, knows nothing about the divorce. He just testifies to what God has done in his life. All I know is I was blind yesterday. Jesus radically came in and changed my life. What God has done in your life, he wants to do through your life. This is the testimonial style. I think this is the easiest way. Maybe, maybe this is my style. It's just to brag on what God's done in your life. And you should be able to do this every day. It's kind of a telltale sign when I ask you, hey man, what's God been doing in your life? And you say, well, 23 years ago, you know, I found Jesus. No, not, I, don't, I mean, that's great. What's he doing in your life now? How are you walking with him? How are you communing with him? What are you repenting of? Where are you seeing his faithfulness come through again and again? This is the testimonial style. Hey, man, you know, I was just living all for myself, and then, then I met Jesus, and he radically changed me. Or I've been saved for 20 or 30 years, but still I struggle with my own sin nature that doesn't reign in my life. And God is just doing this work of just making me less and less and less so that he can be made more and more and more. He's restored my marriage. He's, he's, he's taking these things that happened to me in the past and he's, he's given me this supernatural gift to be able to forgive people who had hurt me to such a degree. All of that is testimonial style, just what God has done. Church, do you believe that God is at work? Absolutely he is and he's working in your life. And for us to be just so like uh, calm about the supernatural God of the universe doing work in us. I see this often in teenagers. I can't tell you how many times that I took a group of teenagers to some camp, some mission trip or something, and God radically changed their life. And I would share this with them the last day, hey, we're about to go home. And you're going to go to your mission field where God has planted you in some dark places and you've got some friends that don't know him. And what I want you to do is just go in there and share what God's done in your life. And these these kids, 11, 12, 13, 14, that have been saved a week or a day, would go home and start that God would begin to work. These incredible things would begin to come for just people who were taking a step of boldness using this testimonial style of evangelism. Next is the invitational style. Again, these aren't all of them. They're probably more in Scripture. The book lists six or seven. I added a few. This is the invitational style. This is John 4, the woman at the well. This lady was the outcast of all outcasts. She's a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Back when they were in Babylon, they were supposed to remain separate, but they intermarried with different cultures, different religions. So when they came back, they just completely ostracized them. Because of that, the leaders of Samaria kind of made their own temple, their own Jerusalem, so to speak, where people would come to worship. Anyway, there was just this social angst that was 
beyond probably anything that we could uh, even describe it as. Well, Jesus wants to cut through Samaria instead of going the long way around as they would normally do, the Jews would. And he goes in the middle of the day and meets this lady at the well. Now, she's the outcast of all outcasts because she's coming at a time when none of the other Samaritans, even the Samaritans didn't like the Samaritan. But Jesus sees her at the well. He sits with her. This conversation thing starts going on. She's talking about, uh, we got to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says, hey, can I give you water so you'll never thirst again? Talking about this living water. Her life has radically changed. Verse 29, this is the invitational style of evangelism. Hey, she goes back to her village. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. She just invited him. Again, no apologetics there needed. She just said, listen, would you just, why don't you just come and see? Why don't you just come check this thing out? I read an article several years ago that 82% of people are willing to come to a church service if you ever invite them. And I thought that was certainly out of date. And the more I pressed into this, I think the number, most current number is 55%. They would show up to something if you invited them. Listen, don't ever say no for people. Invite people to take a spiritual step. And maybe their first step is not to a gathering. Maybe it's to coffee with you. Their first step might not be to this. It might be to a ladies' retreat or to a men's retreat or, or maybe you have a men's huddle or, or maybe you just want to make up something to invite them to. You're, I'm going to have a barbecue in my backyard and invite some of my friends and I'm going to pray that my friend would come and get to know these people. Maybe the gospel will begin to work in his heart and his life. This is the invitational style. Everyone can invite someone to something, some step. Who has God placed you in their path that you might need to take a step to invite someone there's the confrontational style. This is Peter in Acts 2. Sometimes people just need to hear hard, direct truths. Peter gets up to give his sermon. Acts 2.22. He looks at the men of Israel. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. And God raised him up. Just this confrontational style of truth. Sometimes... Maybe this is the typical evangelist that maybe we were used to growing up that would, you know, come in from out of town and they would get up and get the, all, the church all fired up and, you know, shoot arrows everywhere at everybody, right? That this is the kind of thing. And I, this, is, this is a legitimate style of evangelism. God uses hard truths to people sometimes. Next, I know we're running out of time, the intellectual style. This is Paul in Acts 17. This is philosophical way of presenting the gospel. Paul goes into the marketplace and he begins talking about God and he's invited to go to the Areopagus and he's using apologetics and defensive logic and ethics and, and moral and quoting poets. That's what he says in Acts 17 verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The confrontational style starts with a conversation 
starts the conversation with God's word and what it means for our lives. The intellectual style starts with where people are and then builds a bridge from where they are to what God's word says. This intellectual style, these are these people that just uh, love to hang out in the, on the web and these uh, intellectual arguments are for why God exists and explain these different uh, types of resistance. Reminds me a lot of this. I mean, you read his reasons for God and you'll know very quickly kind of where he's at. Augustine was one that wrestled with a lot of these things and many more. So thankful where people have this intellectual style. They can think so quickly on their feet and they can say this is the objection, but this is what God's word says. Next is the relational style. This is Paul. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica where he had spent much of his time. It says in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. This relational style, this is evangelism kind of wrapped up in this gift of hospitality. Inviting people over to share meals with them, not once, but for years and years and years until they come to faith. Just say, hey man, there's room at my table. You don't have to believe all the things we believe. But that's not going to stop us from sharing all the things we believe. We just want to love you where you are. This is the Rosaria Butterfield kind of evangelism. Just building deep relationship with people, loving them. Not as a cause or a number or a project, but just loving them. The image of God that they were created in and praying that they would meet Jesus. Some of this should be going on in our missional communities. That's why we've designed them this way, that we could develop relationships with our neighbors, friends, coworkers, people in our networks. and We could just, we could just love them where they are. There's a supernatural style of evangelism. This is the lame beggar healed. Peter John going into the temple, the guy's asking for some money. Peter stops and focuses on the guy. This is what he says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 3. I have no silver of gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Supernatural style of evangelism. Church, do you believe that God still does supernatural things? Is he still in the supernatural business working in people's lives? I believe so, 100%. Sometimes this is the main style used by missionaries all over the world. I was talking to some of our missionaries just a few weeks ago, and they were talking about how these people in these far remote distant villages kept getting these uh, images of Jesus Christ showing up to them in their dreams and sharing the gospel with them. And listen, I don't know what the theology of that is. All I know is like whole villages are coming to Christ in a place where they're ostracized for doing so. I believe that that's still, God works in that way. The next, this is the discernment style. You might call this the jazz of evangelism. Acts 8 with my man Philip. This is the most incredible story. You should read this once a week just to think, man, that's just incredible how God used him in this way. It starts in verse 26. Now an angel said, uh, angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go uh, toward the south. On the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there he met an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all the treasure. He had come to Jerusalem for worship. 
Because he was a eunuch, he couldn't make his way into the temple. As he was returning home, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This is just amazing how the Holy Spirit works, right? He's there reading the prophet Isaiah. He can't understand it. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over there and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, hey, man, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch said, hey, as a matter of fact, how can I understand it unless someone shows me? Philip says, you know what? I happen to know a little bit about this. And, and he just jumps in and starts sharing the gospel. This is, what, this is what he meant when Isaiah was saying this. He was really pointing to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus just came, and he was the one that was crucified and dead and buried and raised on the third day to stay with us for 40 days. And then he ascended, and he's explaining, like, all the things to him. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with Scripture, told them the good news about Jesus. Man, I love that. In verse 39, they pass some water. He says, hey, what's keeping me from being baptized here? Like, is it acceptable? I feel like, yeah, it's acceptable. Let's do this thing. And so he baptized them. This is awesome. Came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. He just teleported, which is really cool. And then he could have just stopped there and just wrote a book, right, and just lived off this the rest of his life. But he doesn't do that. Look at verse 40. Philip found himself in Azotus. I just love that. Like, where am I at? Oh, this must be Azotus. What should I do here? Oh, I'll just keep preaching the gospel like I've always done. And he passed through and he preached the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I love this, like, discernment style of evangelism. If you've ever met or you know anybody like this, they make you uncomfortable all the time. Because no matter where you go or what you're doing, they're fixing to pause the conversation because uh, God burdened their heart for somebody else. My Uncle Chip was this way. If you knew my Uncle Chip, the evangelist, my mom's brother, he would do the weirdest thing. And for like two years, I traveled with him, and we would be at some place, at some fancy traditional church, and he said, you know what, I really feel like the Lord's leading me to like take off my shoes while I preach. And I was like, bruh, that's stupid, dude. That is not the Lord, man. Like that was your uh, uh, Hardy's biscuits and gravy that you ate. That is not the Lord. He's like, well, I'm going to do it, man. I'd rather, I'd rather be a little wrong and a little crazy than miss what God's doing. And then afterwards, like somebody would come up and he said, man, I've been an atheist my whole life. And I told the Lord when I was coming in here, if the preacher will take off his shoes while he preaches, of course, he's not going to do this. But if he would do it, then God, I would know that you're real. And I was like, what? I hated going to restaurants with him. We would sit down and we would order. And he said, hey, man, God's just giving me a burden for this bartender over here. I'm going to just go pray with him. I'd be like, well, okay, I'm going to sit here and eat my uh, onion blossom or whatever it is. And you go do your thing. And lo and behold, he's over there. They're like, you know, kneeling, uh, laying across the bar. Both of them are weeping. This guy's coming to Christ. I've got another friend like this named Scott. And we were at the 49ers game um, a couple years ago. And we're sitting down. These two, I've told you the story, this crazy fan next to him was just like, uh, just nuts. I mean, he was there to watch the game and do all the things that he was doing, right? He was drinking, and Scott just says, man, I feel his burden. Would you pray for me as I talk to this guy next to me? And I was like, what are you, you going to talk about what? Like the Cowboys? What are you talking? No, I'm going to share the gospel with you. I was like, bro, you are not. That guy's not ready for it. You're going to get punched in the face. This guy came to watch this game. He just, he just starts sharing the gospel with him. They leave somewhere at the halftime. I go check on him at the end of the fourth, uh, beginning of the fourth quarter. Hey, I'm going to make sure Scott didn't get murdered for sharing the gospel with somebody. This Scott and his friend, grown man with the jersey on, are on their knees in the vestibule outside of the thing. This guy's praying to receive Christ in his life. Unbelievable. This discernment style of evangelism. And I talk to those guys and I say, man, tell me how I can get a little bit more of that in my life. He said, you just got to make sure, Luke, that 
this is what Chip would say. I wake up every day saying, God, my day, this day is not my day, it's your day. Stop, my, stop, stop, my, stop, my, stop me in the tracks anytime you want to. Ask me to do whatever you want me to, and I'm going to go do it. I'm like, oh, well, that's why our lives are so different, right? I wake up with a to-do list of all that I have to get done today. It helps, verse 26, that the angel of the Lord said to Philip, right? Lord, if you could just send an angel before I go talking to any bartender at Chili's. Can you send me an angel that says this is? Next is the serving style. I love this too. Acts chapter 9. They were in Joppa. Disciple named Tabitha, which translated Dorcas, was full of good works and charity. She had passed away. And there's this community of widows mourning for her. Peter comes into the, into the city. These widows meet her, meet Peter and say, Peter, our, our, our friend, uh, Tabitha, has uh, passed away and she's laying in this upper room and we need you to go heal her. He saw that the widows were so very upset about her death. He went up there, prayed for her. This is an incredible story. You'd have to go back and read it when we had more time. These widows are showing Peter the garments that Tabitha, a widow who had nothing, no real way of getting anything, this lady made it her ministry just to sew their clothes. Her ministry was repairing the clothes of these widows. And she had served them for so long that she impacted a whole community just through serving them. Incredible style of evangelism. Here's the point. God wants to use you to invite other people to join his kingdom. And he has wired you in a very specific way. And you might have all of these, and that would be phenomenal. But God wants to use you to serve, to discern where he's moving, to walk in power, the supernatural, to build deep relationships, to think intellectually about these things, maybe to confront people who are living in sin and share the gospel, to invite them in. To give a testimony about what God's doing. It doesn't necessarily matter what style you use. But we've all got to be a part of the Great Commission. That is the call upon our life. That's what Paul reminds young Timothy. Hey, listen, man. Remember your call. Let me just close with this idea about power. I know we're out of time. You don't do this in your own strength, but by God's power, every bit of it, identity, mission, and power. In verse 7, Paul tells Timothy, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. In verse 12, Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I've believed, and I'm convinced, you might underline, that he is able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. In verse 14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted in you. Here's a reminder, Timothy, the very God of the universe through the person of the Holy Spirit is inside of you and he was working. And the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, helping you, this broken vessel, to carry the gospel forward in a way that pushes back darkness. We've said this many times, but this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the ordinance of communion. Every week we try to do something like this, or many, most of the weeks, where we're invited in and we take the bread and we dip it into the drink and we partake, reminding us of his body and blood, reminding us of his identity, that we are with him, we are his sons and his daughters. But more than that, we go back to our seats is this idea that we, we've been, we're being sent back out and we're being sent back out with the power of God to take this beautiful gospel 
to a world that desperately needs you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Lord, I pray for our church. Lord, would you do something in us where we would just, we would just be miserable with the mundane and the ordinary and just the getting into the motions of all the things. Lord, would you stir in our hearts something incredible? Lord, many in here whose flame has been reduced to this mere ember, Lord, today, would you start a new spark there? Would we apply the kindling of just gathering weekly and opening ourselves up to other godly people who might pour into us? Lord, for those in this room who don't know you as Lord and Savior, maybe they're just kicking the tires on this thing, trying to figure it out. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, would you grant them the gift of faith today? Surely they might not have all their questions answered, but they feel your Holy Spirit pulling and drawing them to you to make Jesus the very Lord of their own lives today. Lord, others of us that are just burnt out and weary, we're like Timothy, we've been doing this a long time. Lord, help fan in the flame that was once burned with passion in us. Lord, help us to be confident and bold as we leave out of here, understanding the great commission and call in our life that we would walk in obedience to what you've done in us. And may we gather again, even next week, with real testimony of what you've done. We thank you for Jesus, what he means to us. So we come to the table. Lord, continue to speak to our hearts. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.